Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 169 Constantinople in 1025. Two episodes of the regular podcast ago, we talked about what had changed in the Roman capital since episode 10 of the show. But our focus was largely on the major monuments and famous buildings. We didn't talk about the rest of the city, and that's what we're going to do today. Episode 10 of the podcast was set in 518 AD. We're now in 1025. Obviously, to cover the past 500 years in one episode is going to involve some breezy summarizing, but it should give you the highlights of urban development and point toward the issues which will be relevant for our next century of narrative. Let's begin with a quick recap of the major moments in the city's development. In 518, Constantinople bore the imprint of Theodosius's family, who had built many of the famous columns and squares that we've talked about. The long reign of Justinian and the rebuilding done in the wake of the Nica riots gave the city a facelift. When you visit Istanbul today, it's largely Justinian's monuments that survive in the east of the old city a testament to his investment in sturdy architecture and a reflection of the wealth of the empire at that stage. What followed was the collapse under Sassanid and Arab invasions. The bread dole was cancelled, the races curtailed, the baths closed. The city's population shrank and huddled around the southern shore. Buildings were abandoned, streets stood empty. Various measures were taken to cater for this compact populace, such as turning the public squares into livestock markets. During the ninth century, a slow recovery began. The fading away of the caliphate and the success of the Macedonian dynasty brought peace and prosperity. The capital's population began to grow quickly again, and merchants from across the Mediterranean viewed Constantinople as an ideal trading emporium. That's the broad outline. Now let's fill in some details. 
First, let's talk about harbours. Not the most exciting subject you'd think, but a quick discussion of their development will answer some of your questions about the famous trading concessions granted to the Italian cities. Heading back to 518, you may remember me waxing lyrical about the Golden Horn, the inlet of sea whose still waters created one of the greatest natural harbours in the world. Naturally, during the city's earlier centuries, this was the centre of maritime activity. According to historian Paul Magdaleno, though, Justinian shut down the commercial harbours here and concentrated all trade on the southern shore of the city. There is a certain logic to this. The majority of shipping in the 6th century was coming north from the Mediterranean, it was therefore quicker to reach the southern ports on the Sea of Marmara than to go all the way round to the Horn. However, there was important infrastructure along the Golden Horn shore, not just the ports, but bakeries, granaries, and other warehouses designed to facilitate trade. Why would Justinian abandon such a productive area? It's possible that various fires we hear about during his reign gutted this district. But Magdaleno thinks that it was bubonic plague which forced the emperor's hand. As you may recall, during the initial outbreak in the 540s, the sheer number of bodies piling up forced people into extreme measures. Many dumped the dead into the sea, but the shallower currents of the Golden Horn failed to carry the carrion away. Meanwhile, the authorities stacked bodies up in the fortifications of Sikai, the suburb just across the Golden Horn. The stench was horrific and doubtless made the lives of those living along the water very unpleasant. Whatever the exact combination of factors, Justinian decided to invest in the southern Marmara ports and abandon the Golden Horn. He moved the city's wholesale food market near to the port of Julian. That's the harbour nearest to the Hippodrome. And his successor, Justin II, would dredge that port and rename it for his wife, Sophia, a sure sign of its importance. I've put up C. Placidus's excellent map of the city again if you want to follow along. What happened next, you know well. Phocas, Heraclius, Khusro, Mohammed the empire collapsed and with it the population of Constantinople. The movement of the city's centre of gravity to the southern shore was therefore fixed for the next 300 years. The majority of merchant activity remained on the Marmara shore and the Golden Horn was sparsely populated. It's only now around 1025 AD, that the city's population has grown sufficiently to once again turn the Golden Horn into the major trading shore. As most of you know, we are headed toward increased investment in Constantinople by the Italian trading cities, Venice, Genoa, Pisa and Amalfi. Each of these city-states will eventually be granted a concession, a small area of the city set aside for their exclusive use. Now you can see why the Golden Horn Shore was chosen to be the site of these concessions. It sat along a fabulous natural harbour and was relatively undeveloped and depopulated. These concessions have not yet been granted, 
but by 1025, the Golden Horn was already being used to house foreign merchants. Italian, Jewish, and Muslim traders had already made homes for themselves beside the warehouses assigned to them for their business. Some bad riots in the 1040s will persuade the authorities to move the Jews across the Golden Horn to new quarters in Sikai, leaving more room for Italian merchants to settle there. Interestingly, we learn from Liutprand of Cremona that his fellow Italians were prominent in the naval forces of Nicephorus Phocas. Listeners have often asked why the Romans didn't make their navy a higher priority, and part of the answer is the regular supply of skilled foreigners who could be recruited from the capital's ports. When Nicephorus recaptured Crete for the empire, his navy was full of foreign mercenaries, Italian sailors and Rus soldiers amongst them. Why go to the expense of training native Byzantines when these outsiders are just hanging around the docks, willing to work for cash? Italian traders found Constantinople an extremely lucrative and welcoming place. Merchants could take goods from Europe to the Bosphorus, turn a profit, and store it in their warehouse on the Golden Horn. Then they'd sail for the east and bring goods from the Arab world to sell to the Romans. Then they could buy up luxury goods from the imperial workshops and return home to flog them to the courts of Europe, weighed down by the coins they'd accrued along the way. The absence of native Byzantine traders in many of the ports they called at made their work well worth doing. And despite regular tolls on entering and leaving Constantinople, they could still make a handsome profit. Cultural and religious ties also gave the Italians a leg up inside the city. For example, many of the landing stages along the Golden Horn were not controlled by the government. They had been donated to various religious houses to provide them with a steady income. Italian traders were in a good position then to show due reverence to the head of a local monastery and strike up a deal for use of his facilities. I also mentioned Muslim traders. Their presence in the city had become easier to contemplate since the collapse of the caliphate. And the fact that they brought eastern silks was a major inducement for the government to find room for them. Remember that silk garments were part of the annual salary given to imperial officials. They were a nice bonus on top of the cash to reward those who loyally served the government. There were state-run silk warehouses in Constantinople, but apparently you can never have too much of the stuff. Muslim traders weren't allowed to sell their goods directly to the people. Instead, the Byzantine guilds would buy them up and sell them on. In addition to textiles, these men sold pepper, cinnamon, amber, musk, incense, myrrh, and various other eastern produce. Interestingly, the government seems to have guaranteed to buy any unsold merchandise when these traders had finished their three-month stay in the city. This was a very generous offer and presumably reflects the desire to A, maintain a steady silk supply, and B, make sure eastern traders did not return home with stories of being ripped off in the Christian capital. 
This concern for hospitality extended to allowing the local Muslims to worship freely. References to a mosque at the capital are made, but scholars assume this means existing buildings were handed over for the use of the Muslims rather than an original construction. It seems likely that the traders on the Golden Horn had a space for worship within their hostelry or warehouse. We also know that prisoners being held in the palace were given space to pray, but more on that later. So, moving on from the ports, uh, as we talked about a couple of episodes ago, lots of the amenities of the classical city disappeared over time the baths, the universities, the theatres, and so on. But these institutions did not all vanish at once. I don't think it would be worth discussing each in turn, but I think we can safely generalise that between 518 and 1025, most large public buildings were no longer used for the purpose they had been originally designed for. We've talked already about the famous bathhouses which stopped being used, The same goes for the various nymphaea, the ornamental fountains which the aqueducts had once fed. The basilica had been a large public space for law courts and shops, but was now gone. Justinian built the famous cistern underneath it. The old senate houses were no longer used, nor were the offices of the praetorian prefect. The various logothetes who succeeded the prefect moved within the palace complex. Much contraction naturally followed the crisis of the 7th century. When the empire stopped being a superpower, there was no money available to lavish on public buildings. But as I say, some changes had begun long before the Arabs arrived. Several public schools once existed in the city, but their function was taken over by the church during Justinian's era. The logic behind this was both financial and moral. Justinian was the one who closed the academy at Athens, so it would be no surprise if he also encouraged churches at the capital to take responsibility for education. Of course, the churches and monasteries trained their own clergy, but they now began to provide classrooms for secular learning too. Traditional education in grammar and rhetoric would continue, but without the explicit pagan connections that further learning had once entailed. This development was also calcified by the collapse of the 7th century. Municipal finances were no longer available for education, and so parents would pay the church to teach their young. Also, with public buildings falling into disrepair, only the church could provide adequate classroom space. Similar developments seem to have taken place in the legal world. By 1025, legal practices and law schools were based on church complexes. The city's notaries were regulated by the prefect and were expected to be registered with one of the established offices inside the major church foundations. Constantinople's churches had therefore taken over almost all social care functions, They were responsible for feeding and housing the indigent. They ran the hospitals and orphanages, the old age homes, the schools, and much of the law. Most of these developments seem to have been underway before the crisis kicked in, but once it came, there was no going back. The church dominated public life. 
Discussing the city's universities is tricky. Apparently there was a centrally funded institution in the 5th century, run out of the palace, but beyond that references are fleeting. The bureaucracy continued to function, even throughout the centuries of crisis, so clearly grammar, rhetoric and law continue to be taught at a decent level in the city. But this may have been a function of the church schools, or just groups of students who gathered around a good teacher who taught in their own home. There are no references to a campus or a a library open to all students. Those wanting to study advanced subjects like maths, astronomy, philosophy and so on would need plenty of money. Books weren't cheap and their availability couldn't be guaranteed. Almost all the intellectuals we hear about during these centuries worked in the palace or the patriarchate. In other words, they were able to access the palace library and archives to do their research. This was the only reliable store of knowledge during this period, though private libraries did exist. Sponsoring learning was still considered a duty of a good emperor, and so in better times we hear that university chairs were established under Michael III and Constantine VII, but it's hard to tell what exactly was happening or how long it lasted. It's possible that individual professors were put on the imperial payroll, and then once they or their patron died, the position ceased to be funded. The intellectual culture of the city, like almost everything else, began to pick up towards the end of the ninth century, and I hope to be able to explore this cultural flowering in more detail at the end of our next century. We will, however, encounter some of it in the narrative through the career of Michael Pselos. Several listeners asked about whether the architecture of the city would look radically different than it had done in Justinian's day. In some sense, the answer is no. We've already dedicated four episodes to discussing the giant imperial constructions which survived the centuries. They provided the skyline with seemingly eternal landmarks. In addition to the famous buildings, there were a series of other structures which also survived the passage of time. Those church foundations we just talked about that provided social care. Many of these complexes were established before the crisis years, as were a series of huge mansions that we know about. These were originally designed to house the super-rich families of antiquity, but over the centuries they seem to have been taken over by the government and used for a variety of functions, sometimes doled out to officials to be their residences. For example, Basil Le Cabinos lived in one during his time in power, while others were converted into churches or cisterns when needed. The reason that so many buildings remained in place for centuries is that the government couldn't afford to replace them. The resources no longer existed to construct buildings on this scale. It wasn't just the size of these structures, it was that their foundations were so hard to replicate. As you know, Constantinople was hit by regular earthquakes. Every 150 years or so, a truly catastrophic one would strike. Inevitably, this would see substandard buildings suffer or collapse completely. 
whereas those built during Justinian or Theodosius's day remained standing. Back then, the empire was a true superpower, and huge amounts were lavished on these structures to ensure that they could withstand the trials of nature. During the crisis years, the Byzantine government was keen to preserve these monuments of a better time. Hence why some mansions were converted into churches or cisterns. Their sturdy foundations were so enviable that they were repurposed rather than knocked down and rebuilt. The southern tip of the Hippodrome, the Svendon, was another giant structure converted into a cistern during less happy times. At a glance, then, Constantinople would have looked familiar to Justinian had he gone forward in his DeLorean to 1025, but on closer inspection, much would have changed. We've already discussed the dozens of public buildings that had collapsed or been abandoned, and the large parts of the city that were uninhabited. Either side of the messy, life would have been busy and cluttered and not entirely pleasant, Building sites, communal dumps and cesspits would have sat just a few metres from tenement buildings crammed with humans and animals. Filth would have been everywhere. It's hard for us to imagine what this might have looked like exactly. We don't have a good archaeological record of ordinary buildings in the city, in part because so many of them were not built to last and certainly wouldn't have survived centuries of earthquakes. We can talk in general terms about the houses of the wealthy. Uh, During the crisis years, a popular spot to live was south of the Messi, where the land slopes down to the sea, as this afforded beautiful views. But as the recovery began, the rich moved further out toward the land walls. They were able to build larger homes there, the very well-off enjoying private chapels and gardens, while even those living in crowded areas, would ideally open their front door onto a courtyard, leading to many rooms of the house. Plants were encouraged to grow up the walls, and kitchen gardens would be kept to feed the household. Much of this information comes from indirect sources. To get visual clues, we have to look at the houses of related civilizations. One is Venice, which was deeply influenced by Constantinople, and whose medieval mansions have in some cases been well-preserved. And the second is Ottoman architecture, of which we have a better understanding. I've put up examples of both styles on the website if you'd like to check them out. In spite of the impoverishment of the empire over the centuries, new buildings were put up the grandest of which were inevitably churches and monasteries. Two in particular are relevant for us in 1025. Up until Basil I's reign, the only major building work we hear about was in the palace. More on that later. In 869, though, one of those truly devastating earthquakes hit New Rome. This was two years after the messy murder of Michael III, and one could easily have seen it as a sign of God's displeasure at Basil's presence on the throne. Quick to capitalise, Basil undertook a major restoration project. He was able to present himself 
somewhat as a new Justinian, as his work crews toured the city, patching up major buildings that had been damaged by the shudder. But to complete the effect, he needed a brand new foundation. To dedicate a church of his own would help eliminate doubts about his legitimacy. And this would effectively be the first new imperial church built since the 6th century. Basil was able to do this because the caliphate had begun its long decline and Byzantine finances were improving significantly for the first time in a long time. What Basil built, though, was far more modest than anything Justinian had erected. The wonder of Justinian's churches was the way their domes appeared unsupported. The clever designs allowed for the dome's weight to be spread out onto supporting arches and columns. Basil had to make do with very prominent columns holding up his central dome. Though he had four smaller domes placed over the corners of the central one to create a more impressive-looking five-domed church. Inside, the decoration was said to be magnificent, but much of it was taken from other buildings. Justinian's mausoleum, for example, seems to have been stripped of its tesserae to help create mosaics in Basil's new church. And that was to be how the building was known, the Nea Ecclesia, the new church, reflecting, of course, for contemporaries, the reality that there hadn't been a new imperial church for hundreds of years, a name which obviously becomes amusing to us when it was still referred to as such centuries afterwards. The new church was built in the grounds of the palace, and obviously served a specific function in Basil's attempts to legitimise his dynasty. Our second new church was built halfway down the Messi, but for similar reasons. This is the church of the Mirelion, built by Romanus Le Capinos during the course of our past century. The church survives today as the Bodrum Mosque, and I've put up a picture, taken by me, on the website. The Mireleon gives you a thumbnail sketch of the change in architecture since Justinian's day. Like Basil's church, it has a small dome held up by four central pillars. Brick instead of stone was used for much of the masonry, and the whole building is far smaller than those of Justinian's day. The Ahia Irene, for example, or St. Sergius and Bacchus, both standing in Istanbul today, are far larger and grander than the Mireleon. Romanus's church reflects a poorer, smaller civilization, but maintains a dignity and beauty of its own. Le Capinos built the church as part of a monastic complex he established. The monastery was to have room to house the elderly and tend the sick, as well as a bakery large enough to offer free bread to thousands of people. This was Romanus's legacy. Through this foundation, his name would always be associated with goodness, and the clergy who ran it would go on venerating his name. Beneath the church, he also created a burial chapel for his family, suspecting correctly that he would not be welcome in the imperial mausoleum. For those interested, 
these two constructions tell us plenty about Byzantine architecture in this period. But from our narrative perspective, they mark a new way forward in imperial construction. Back in Theodosius's day, emperors created public squares with monumental columns in them. That's what you did to be remembered. During the crisis years, money wasn't available for anything on this scale. But now there was. Now a Vasilevs could build new church complexes to be remembered by, and to be buried in. You may remember in episode 159 we talked about how Basil II's brother, Constantine, will be the last man to be shoved into the overcrowded mausoleums. In the future, emperors will look to immortalize themselves in their own churches. If Justinian's buildings survive in the east of the city, it is these later churches which you can still visit today in the west. Over time, this will transform the look of the city and help mark a change in the distribution of the population. As we discussed, during the centuries of uncertainty, the city clustered around the Messi and the southern shore of the city. The palace and Hagia Sophia sat to the east, sucking people in that direction for official business. Several developments over the coming centuries will push the centre of attention to the other end of the city. The emperors will increasingly use the Vlachianai Palace as their main residence. Naturally, bureaucrats and businesses will follow, establishing a large population centre in the northwest of the city. And this will draw people's needs closer to the Golden Horn than the Marmara, accentuating the shift towards that shore as the city's primary commercial hub. And as emperors look to create large monastic houses to savour their legacy, they will also look to the empty lands running up to the land walls rather than the crowded streets of the east. These new establishments will help provide social care for the growing population in the west of the city, and many non-imperial foundations will also be created over the next century in this direction. These developments will alter the cityscape more dramatically than anything that's happened in the past few hundred years. As I mentioned earlier, the one place we know that emperors built during the 7th to 9th centuries was in the Great Palace. Naturally, most rulers wanted to put their stamp on the place, and the need to impress foreign visitors was a constant concern. We hear of work being done under Justinian II and Constantine V, but it's generally Theophilus who is credited with the most radical work. The original buildings of the palace were built about 32 metres above sea level, pressed against the eastern side of the Hippodrome. Over the years, various structures had been added, creeping down the hillside towards the sea. Theophilus usually gets the credit for moving permanently into the Bucolian Palace. This was a complex which lay only 16 metres above the sea, with enough room to house the imperial family and their staff. Theophilus seems to have built extra rooms and added a shiny new façade, the ruins of which can still be seen. The result of this move seems to have been the abandonment of the upper palace except for ceremonial occasions. 
The daily functions of the court and the living space of the imperial family were all now on the lower level. This is where Basil built his new church, and it's notable that when Nicephorus Phocas built his defensive wall around the palace, it only surrounded the lower levels. Well, actually one part of the upper palace was included, the imperial box in the Hippodrome. This was still needed for appearances in the arena, and for access to the palace. The abandonment of the upper part meant that the Chalk Gate was no longer used for the daily comings and goings of officials. They entered through a gate next to the imperial box in the Hippodrome. The same gate Belisarius used to attack the people during the Nika riots. It's not entirely clear why the upper palace was abandoned just as we aren't entirely sure why the imperial regime subsequently moved to Vlachernai. It may simply be that the Bucolion had better facilities, or was easier to maintain than some of the older buildings up above. It certainly gave the emperors easy access to the sea, which was very valuable. One group who seemed to have remained on the upper level were the various guards units who lived in the palace. Alongside them, according to several sources, were prisons for captured soldiers. This is where Muslim officers would be taken to live, in relative comfort, until prisoner exchanges could be arranged. They were also allowed to maintain a room that functioned as a mosque. In one of his letters, Nicholas Mysticus refers to it as an oratory, but we don't know any more details than that. We know it had diplomatic significance, though. It allowed emperors to ask for better treatment for Christians in the caliphate, and in negotiations with Baghdad and Cairo, one of the points of debate was which caliph would be acknowledged in the prayers of the mosque at Constantinople. There's a lot more one could say about the palace, but a lot of it is speculative, one scholar describes it as a labyrinth of halls, chambers, chapels, barracks, service buildings, corridors and courtyards sprawling down the hillside on terraces. Buildings were repurposed over the centuries. Once it lost its luster, a grand meeting hall might become a dowdy administrative office, only to be spruced up again centuries later. So it's hard to talk definitively about its layout in a particular era. In 1025, it remained the ceremonial and familial home of the imperial family. Increasingly over the course of the next century, emperors will prefer to spend time at the Vlachernai Palace. Though this is pure speculation, it's possible that Basil II began this trend. His relentless campaigning in the Balkans may have led him to prefer to reside by the walls when at home rather than make formal processions through the streets. Emperors will not stop using the Great Palace, though, for a long time to come. It will remain important both for ceremonial and administrative functions. And we'll talk more about Vlachianai at the end of the next century. Let's close the book on Constantinople for now by looking at the perennial question of population size. This remains a matter of scholarly guesswork. 
Various attempts have been made to calculate the size of the populace based on estimates of the grain dole, but once that was cancelled, we don't even have those figures to work from. A number in the 300 to 600,000 range is generally agreed upon for Justinian's pre-plague city, and the lowest figures given for the 8th century range from 40 to 70,000. Paul Magdaleno argues that it probably wasn't lower than 70,000 people. Our best evidence for the size of the city's population actually comes just before the Turkish conquest in the 1450s, when estimates suggest that the figure was about 70,000. During this time period, various parts of the city's infrastructure had ceased to function, like the open-air cisterns, which had by then been filled in to create vegetable gardens. Magdaleno's point being that if the local water supply could sustain 70,000 people then, there's no reason to believe it dropped lower than that back in the crisis centuries. We assume that the population began to grow again from the reign of Constantine V onwards, and that it would be in the two to 500,000 range around the time of the Crusader sack of 1204. As we'll see in the narrative, the defeat at Manzikert and the advance of the Turks into Anatolia will see many refugees head for the Roman capital, swelling its population further. Where have we reached by 1025? Uh, who knows is the real answer, but somewhere between 150 and 250,000 is an informed, if entirely speculative, guess. One indication that the population is growing significantly is the appearance in the chronicles of urban unrest. There are no reports of famine during the 8th and 9th centuries, but twice in our last century we saw the population suffering. First in the harsh winter of 927-28 under Romanus Lecapinos, and then again under Nicephorus Phocus, when his brother Leo was accused of speculating in grain. We have to take this with a pinch of salt, as we can't rely on our various historians to catalogue every moan from the mob. But it could suggest that an expanding Constantinople was having the sort of growing pains that come from a large populace reliant on imported food. Phew! That's it for now on Constantinople in 1025 AD. We will be back for more next century, and of course, plenty of visits in between. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.